I'm going to be running and comparing a monthly show called Stand Up Tragedy. Check it out at www.standuptragedy.co.uk. The first night will be happening on the 6th of February and tickets are available for that and for all the nights from the Leicester Square Theatre box office. It's also going to be available as a podcast, so check it out on its SoundCloud page or have a search for it on iTunes and subscribe there. The live nights are going to be fantastic. I've got some really great acts booked and we're not just having a live night. We're also going to be releasing a free weekly short form this time podcast of extracts from those shows. It's time to go. In fact, in my first year, an actual proper year, I realised by Christmas of my first year that I wanted to be an academic. I never wanted to leave university. Hello, I'm Dave. I'm the guy that's putting all this stuff together. I need to get better. Please make me better. I want to get better. Better. Better acquainted with you. So today we're getting better acquainted with Chris. Hello, Chris. Hello, Dave. How did you meet me? At Lancaster University. I know that you were in a, a particular lecture in the second year of your university course, I think. Okay. You were among a group of maybe 30, 35 students. Yeah, I think that's when I first met you. I was doing the lecture. Yep. Was it about Che Guevara's mouse mat or something? <laughs> I think. I think I might have used you, that. You as... used it as an example, the mouse mat with Che Guevara on it. Oh, yeah. right, yeah. Yeah, which, yeah. Which I think I... Yeah, I had a Che Guevara mouse mat. And yeah, about representation and to ideologically perhaps neuter particular images or perhaps not I don't know but I do remember yeah I think I remember using that and it was probably a lecture on postmodern theory as well yeah I think so for all its sins I remember talking about that quite a bit well, so yeah, anyway, yeah I met you then cool and you were you were the lecturer I was. I don't know if we made that clear. We probably did. What do you do now? Well, I continue lecturing, although on a slightly different subject. I am a lecturer at a university in London, and I lecture in media, cultural studies, and also journalism studies. So those kind of three. Cultural studies is the is the is the big kind of interdisciplinarity area, I guess, and into which I do a bit of journalism studies stuff and some uh, some media studies stuff as well. When you left school, Mm -hmm. you were saying to me off mic that you became a plumber. I did, yeah. Why did you leave school and become a plumber? When I was at school, I wasn't... I was told at school by teachers... All my reports were bright but lazy, bright but lazy, bright but lazy. Got that quite a lot. And by the time I got to about 14, I still got that in the reports, but I actually wasn't quite bright enough (laughs) to be as lazy as I was. I don't think I was particularly bright. I was just sort of competent and I was all right. I was a bit sort of cheeky... But anyway, I just played football and played sport and went cycling. Just I didn't really do any work. But I got away with it for a little while. And then by the time I got to... They were called the fourth and fifth year at the time. But I think they're now called year 10 and 11. It's a long time since I've been at secondary school. Anyway, I really had no options. Going to university wasn't even thought of because I just kind of not really bothered working. And my sister was going out with a guy called Craig, who then became my brother-in-law. And he was, he was a plumber. He was training to be a plumber. And it always seemed like a, an interesting thing to do. And I thought, you know, in that kind of tradition of get a trade, son. And I, I, I went and did that. And I went and trained to be a plumber. Did my city and guilds. Did that for three years. Passed my city and guilds. And about a year into doing plumbing, I realised I couldn't stand it. Didn't really like it. You know, I was probably still a bit lazy, to be honest. I was 17. And then just quit. Left. <laughs> it's not a particularly wise thing to do, maybe. But um, turns out all right, anyway. Well, yeah. So you, you quit being a plumber. Mm. What did you do then? I mean, what was your? Um, I then did you have a, you, you had didn't you quit with no plan or you? No, no plan at all. Well, actually, no. I did. That's not strictly true. I did have a slight plan, which was to return to education, but in a kind of really strange way. Just, just I did. I did some GCSEs at, at college. I was nineteen, I think, just about within the kind of threshold where I could still return to college. And all my friends, many of my friends, were going to college. They'd return and were doing A levels, and some were doing GCSEs. So I sort of went back with them. 
and started to study. And then I think I did that in September, and by March I, uh, I wasn't particularly focused. I sort of started dropping out and quitting that as well. And then I hit upon the idea that I maybe I'd just go and travel around Europe, which is what I did in May when I was 20, I think. I think I was 20, yeah, in May. 1992, I went and travelled around France for about five months. I guess the reason that people sometimes give to doing something like that is to find themselves yeah maybe did did you I mean do you think you did at that time I don't know maybe I certainly at the time and have continued to to this very day to over romanticise and mythologise the country of France going in a strange direction had no idea I'd go this way but anyway I I romanticised the country of France I still do still really love it and visit it many times couple of times a year anyway so I sort of I guess I did find myself but all I did really was come back and, and romanticise about France and go on about how good it was but then when I did come back I did then need to get a job so I found a job as a van driver I drove a van for a living from kind of end of 1992 until 1995 which was fine it was, it was you know quite a good job not very well paid but kind of relaxed and you know I just drove around delivering parts for cars and it was fun but at that point I then really did think I wanted to get back to education um, well, and seriously this time. What attracted you back to education? You, at school, doesn't sound like you were that into it. No. Why did you have this desire to go back to education? I don't know. I think it's a combination of factors. I've thought about this a little bit. Some of it might seem slightly ridiculous or even kind of trite, but I was into particular music. I was very into the Smiths. Also into bands like Blur, and I really, yeah. really loved Blur. But I really loved the Smiths, and I always had this idea that the Smiths were most people that like them seemed to think they were speaking to them, and that, you know, all bands do that, I yeah. guess. And they were the ones for the outsiders. But Morrissey and Ma, and Morrissey in particular, always seemed to be seemed to represent something articulate, I guess. The extent to which that is true, of course, this was a debatable point. But at the time, to a kind of younger, impressionable mind, I, I really liked Morrissey, and I thought. You know, he was he was proud to be someone that read books. Yeah. That was it. I'll meet you at the cemetery gates, Keats and Yeats are yeah. on your side yeah. and Wilde is on mine. Yeah. yeah. So in, he, in he... fact I started reading Oscar Wilde based on Morrissey. Mm. It does sound weird, but it's true. Because he was proud to be a reader of books. So I started reading and found I liked reading. I kind of always liked reading any of it, it's just the paper. No, I was interested in media even then. But anyway, so that was one of the reasons. And the other reason was I did really want to do something. I didn't really know what. But I knew that I didn't want to drive a van forevermore, even though I loved it as a kind of 22, 23-year-old. Oh, yes, I, I can imagine it's a great job to have when yeah. you don't really want to do much apart from have fun. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Kind of 8.30 till 5, you know, five days a week, driving around Sussex, basically. Music on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. brilliant. It was good and hassle-free, really. But, yeah, I did want to do something else. And I didn't know what, but then having read books, I thought, well, maybe I'll... Maybe I'll return to education. But I meant it this time, and I really did. And I'd been in France a little bit, so I had a sort of working knowledge. It turns out not very good working knowledge of French. I could sort of converse in French. So I went back to college, to evening school, and did English literature, English language, and French. Now, A-level. I didn't do very well, but I'd already kind of got the bug. And in fact, within two weeks of starting the French A-level, my French teacher said to me, you are not capable of doing French A-level at the moment. You can speak quite well, but you speak with a very strong Provencal accent. So I'd spent five months in Avignon, oh, uh, I which I took to be a really good point. He said, you've got a Provencal accent. And I thought, oh, brilliant. You know, I'm speaking like a Frenchman. Yeah. He said, well, yeah, you are, but yeah, it's all over the place. You know, you're grammatically all over the place. So, And I got my A-level results which I passed, but not with flying colours. Radio 1, at the time, used to do this thing called Exam Slam. Now, I don't know if they still do. I know they do have interesting programmes for students, but I don't really listen to it anymore. But at the time, they had this thing called Exam Slam, and you could ring up a number and get advice on what to do next. And it was normally for people that didn't get the A-level results they expected. And that was particularly aimed at me. It was pre-mobile phone, and I was out delivering a part for a car in Ringmer in East Sussex. And this advert came on, and I was quite crestfallen, and I was quite upset with my results. And I was still determined, I want to go to university. So I rang up this Radio 1 number and spoke to this really, really helpful woman. I think it was a Radio 1 number, but it, of Radio 1 didn't man it. It was just this, it was right. a separate kind of entity. I rang them, and this really helpful woman advised me very well. She gave me great advice on what to do, and she said, there are four universities in the country, I think, that do, they do a four-year degree, and the first year called a year zero and it's essentially it's an access course but they build it into the degree so it's called a foundation year and the reason they do that 
think is so you get a four year grant you have to still get a grant in those days so I could essentially go away to university but do a year when I was kind of getting used to it and do the equivalent of A-levels or an access course but as part of a year zero foundation and I got a full grant and she said the three universities that did three or four maybe the three that she advised me were Nottingham, Trent Greenwich and Chester University Liverpool uh, Chester College I applied to all three and, and was interviewed by all three and I decided to go to Chester that's interesting I used to live in North Wales and my mum used to work in Chester. Oh, right. I, I went to nursery in Chester when, oh, right. she, when she was at work. Whereabouts in North Wales? Because I got to know kind of mould around there. Uh, near mould. That was, in fact, the address. It was at the end of the address, it says near mould. It was a village called Afonwen, which is at the bottom of Cairois. Okay. That was the smallest town in Europe, but it's no longer. I think there's a smaller one in Eastern Europe. But, uh, okay. But yeah. So that's where, I, that's where I grew up. Oh, right. I really loved that year. The four-year degree, the first year of it, would be in North Wales, mm. in okay. a tiny little town called Northop, where they had an agricultural college, actually, where they would train you know, farmers and, and, and mechanics and, and florists and people like that, but they had a sort of separate little wing of about 20 of us who were doing this foundation year. And it was one of the best 10 months uh, of my life. I absolutely loved it and I met people there one of whom definitely I'm still very good friends with and I see on quite a regular basis we were doing the same thing he was from the Isle of Man he came over from the Isle of Man did the same thing as me and then we went both went to university together in Chester That's that was my return to education and what did you do at Chester what was the degree in? Drama, Theatre Studies and English Literature what attracted you to that topic? Um, when I did the foundation year you could choose either to do science based or humanities based no I was not at all interested or capable of doing anything scientific. I'm not. I'm not particularly science-based. I'm very good at maths or physics or anything like that. Social science is a different thing, but I didn't even know it existed then as a, as a thing. So yeah, I did the humanities side, which was English, and, you know, English literature and things like that, and a little bit of media studies actually, but not much. And then halfway through the foundation year, you you got to choose what subject you would study. Actually, when you began your year one proper. And uh, they just seemed to be the two that interested me most. So I think I went to visit the campus and I walked around and I loved the look of the drama department and I liked the look of some of the drama, you know, staff kind of wandering about making making life look easy, really, but in an academic environment. And it was really, I don't know, as a, as a sort of, I was going to say mature student, I guess, strictly speaking, I was a mature student. But I was only about 24, I think, 23 or 24. And I realised, in fact, in my first year, actual proper year I realised by Christmas of my first year that I wanted to be an academic I never wanted to leave university because I just liked the environment and I think partly that's because you know I, I'd left school become a plumber didn't like it didn't then you know return to education not very successfully and then drove a van which was fine but not really going to go anywhere other than around the roads of Sussex and I I think I really didn't want to waste that opportunity I thought you know I, I never want to leave and pretty much I I, I never have. I was luckily just managed to kind of stick in and, and never leave. So you got your first degree, your undergraduate degree. Yeah. And then did you you did an MA, I imagine? Yeah, at, at the same place. Okay. Um, what was that in? That was in theatre as well, theatre studies. Okay. Um, theatre studies and theatre studies practice, which was interesting and good. And I got my first little bit of teaching work as well, because I did it in a year. And I got, in about March, one of the staff members... That I got to know quite well. He he was signed off sick, and he had eight weeks teaching left to go. And they offered it to me. I think they knew I wanted to be an academic. They knew I wanted to start a PhD, and they offered me some teaching work, which I took. And that was you know I was only I'd only been graduated under a year, but they but they very kindly gave it to me, nerve wrackingly, doing lectures. Did that for that year, and then the next year there was more visiting lecturer work, totaling about twelve hours a week. And was it sort of str- sort of strange? Because I, I always think it must be strange for the younger tutors because you know they're only a few years older than some of their students. And so when I think of my my tutors at university, there were some people who felt more my age than others. Mm-hmm. And I guess you were one of the people who felt. Uh, I don't know if, it, mm-hmm. if this is a yeah, compliment yeah, or, or, or whatever, but you felt more our, our age. Yeah, I think um, I was 29 when I was teaching you. Exactly. So, in fact, you, would have, you were my the age I am now. Oh. So I'm still clinging on desperately to 29 as I'm pushed 
voraciously towards 30 in October. So you would have been my age, and I think I would certainly feel strange to be teaching people in their 19 and 20 age. Although I think I probably would feel like I have something to tell them. Yeah, I think that's, I think that's the key. I think when I, when I did some teaching at Chester, I was teaching third years, who were first years when I was third year. Mm. So it was, yeah, I guess it was a little bit difficult, but exactly as you said, I think I thought I would have enough to tell them that they, that they didn't know, maybe, or that that sounds, sounds wrong. Not that they didn't know, that just that I, that I would be there to guide them through particular things and I might be able to say some things that would be of interest and they might say differently were we to ever track them down, but I think I managed to do it okay. And it, it improved enormously when I got a job, my next job, at a different university because I didn't know any of the students. They had no other context for me other than here's a tutor coming to teach and that was at Lancaster where I met you. It was my kind of academic break to get a job at a, at a brilliant university. Because Lancaster's quite good on the league tables, isn't yeah, it? Because yeah, that's one of the reasons that I chose it myself. Yeah. It's, it's, it's well known and, and it's... Uh, no, it's, a, yeah, it's a good university. I think getting a break there as a as a bona fide lecturer, not a VL, you know, where I was salary temporary post for a year each time. I think got a teaching fellowship, but you were there as a member of academic staff, and that that was slightly different. There is a yeah, that there is a difference, I guess, a slight difference. But even though you are teaching now, have you carried on learning as well? I mean, did, have you done a yeah. PhD? Never stop, really. Never yeah, no. But I mean, have you formally then? Have you do, have you had a PhD after the MA? Uh, yeah, yeah, well, writing, yeah, still writing it. Yes, writing it at now. this point. Yeah, okay. Still. Yeah, I was I was doing a, a thesis, trying to write a PhD, and my tutor at the time, one of my colleagues and someone that taught you as well, Andrew Quick, Doctor Andrew. Ah, Quick, yes. Yeah. Uh, he was my supervisor. He and I would, you know, meet, and he would supervise me. But I was losing, uh, not through any fault of his, I was kind of losing focus because. The reason I was ever really interested in theatre is pretty much because I was always interested in politics and ideology and the politics of representation and that sort of thing, which is always the thing that really got me as an undergraduate. In fact, my undergraduate thesis, it was a guilty and secret pleasure of mine that I was supposed to be writing about theatre or experimental theatre. And lots of my references and lots of my reading were all cultural studies. I would read Stuart Hall and John Story and, and Gramsci and people like that, and it was sort of like a guilty secret of mine. But I managed to kind of weave it into my undergraduate thesis well enough. But anyway, so whilst I was doing my PhD and struggling to, to actually knit two different theses together, which is something another colleague and another person you know, Geraldine Harris, said to me at the time, she said, you're trying to meld two things together that they probably won't work. And it was just as the build-up to the Iraq War which goes to show how long ago it was and how long I've been trying to write a PhD, <laughs> that I was railing against Newsnight's coverage of the build-up to the Iraq mm. War. And I said that there's a debate allowed, but within very narrow confines. You know, it would, They would circumscribe the limits of debate, which is a sort of Chomskyan thing. Chomsky talks about the smart way to keep people passive is to encourage debate, but to circumscribe those limits, to narrow down those limits of what is considered okay to debate about and other things are off the table. So in the Iraq war, for instance, the build-up to the Iraq war, it was okay to say that mistakes had been made, but it was never okay, and still is never okay, to suggest perhaps that actually the rationale for the war might be not benign. The media narrative is always that our intentions are always benign. And, and a brief historical look would suggest that no, that's not always the case. Not that it's not always not. Yeah. But I, I, th- and I thought that was poor. I thought it was terrible. And I was ranting about that, quite angry, at the university. And, and Jerry, Geraldine, Jerry said to me, I've never seen you this passionate about your PhD. You're much more passionate about this and also articulate and quite well informed. I think you should write a PhD in cultural studies and media. And I said, yeah, I think so too, but I don't know how to make that jump. And she said, well, just do it, because at the moment you're trying to write two theses that won't knit together, just write this one. But they couldn't supervise me there, so I kind of jumped ship and went elsewhere. I guess that's what academia is partly about. It's about finding your niche and what you're interested in and finding what works for you. I mean, the course that you taught me when when I studied under you was television drama Mm -hmm. and that in itself is like you say it's about representation Mm -hmm. to move from television drama to television news Mm -hmm. isn't too far a a leap 
But no, and my and my approach to, in fact, the title of my ongoing thesis, which is now much nearer completion than it's ever been, and I'm pretty sure I will complete, and hopefully fairly soon, and and convert it into a book. But anyway, the title of my thesis is Critical Discourse Analysis of BBC Current Affairs Broadcast Strand Panorama: Colon The Appropriation of Dramatic Techniques. So I'm writing about news media, but I'm arguing that actually they appropriate techniques and drama, so narrative and characterisation and things like that. Mm. You know, there's a kind of good guy narrative and bad guy narrative. It's not that simplistic, but the stories, and they are news stories, which we need to remember, for stories to work, they have to work in a particular way. So my analysis, which is a discourse analysis, is, is the way that works. So no, it's not too much of a leap at all. And I also I thank Jerry Harris for suggesting I do that and giving me the course TV drama to teach because it was her course that she handed over to me and I suddenly realised actually teaching television drama and teaching drama you know there are differences and differences that that remain and are important but I made that leap and from that point I I sort of became a cultural studies person it's, It's interesting to me hearing you talk about a kind of experience of you trying to fit two things that don't fit together desperately and somebody else coming along and saying they don't fit together mm. and, and that being a kind of eureka moment I've had those kind of moments with novels you know I've had those kind of moments where I've just been trying so hard to make something work and someone's come along and said actually you know that and you can't see because mm. you're immersed in the in the process yeah and we, I mean, la- we lack that um, the necessary distance I think and, and um, I mean and I mean I think that academic discourse to use the, the parlance of, uh, <laughs> of academia is is something that is analogous to a creative work in that you know you have to put all of this thought process into coming up with something that has a narrative structure not necessarily not a narrative structure but a you have to take the audience on a journey mm-hmm. through your PhD or through a, an academic book in the same way that you do through a novel or hopefully through a conversation mm-hmm. uh, like we're having now an interesting part for me about having a conversation with a someone who is a tutor and who is in academia is that I have a kind of resistance to academia. Mm-hmm. And Which I don't I remember quite well, and have, even though I've not seen you for, for a while, you know, our conversations on Facebook, which I remember about 12 months ago. Yeah, maybe. yeah. There is that I don't know that resistance yeah. to it, I think. But, I mean, it's a, it's a funny thing, because I... I'm not resistant to ideas. I'm not resistant to um, learning. I've got a bit of an issue with authority figures, but that's mm-hmm. my own issue, and I know that that's not reason. <laughs> but I do have a... I guess I have a... In terms of art, I believe in making art accessible. Right. And so, to me, the problem with academia comes when it's not accessible. Mm-hmm. I think that's an ongoing problem. Yeah. It's definitely an ongoing problem. There are at least two parts to that, and one of them is doing kind of research that too often speaks to a narrow audience, you know, at conferences or in academic journals. But, you know, that's the kind of world that we operate in. But there is, um, there are opportunities to kind of disseminate that to a wider audience, which is one of the roles of what you would call the public intellectual, mm. yes, um, of which I'm not, because I'm not public, or probably not intellectual either, but that's one of the jobs. Some academics are very good at that, and others not. I think one of the most valuable public intellectuals in one way is an American scholar called Judith Butler, who is, I think, absolutely brilliant, but in another way she is completely inaccessible. I think her prose is, is quite complex and difficult to get to grips with. But I think she does really valuable things. In the UK, we have someone like Terry Eagleton, yeah, and Alex Kalinikos, and people like that. These are all very leftist people, but I make no apology for that. And David Harvey, of course, the kind of geographer and Marxist critic. So I think there's definitely a problem with inaccessibility. But I think one of the ways around that is if at least you make your teaching accessible. Yeah, so if and you've got complex ideas and you explain them well to students. I think you're doing part of your job. You're not doing all of it, but you're definitely doing part of it. And I hope that I managed to do that. Well, I would say that you did, for me. That's definitely. very kind of you to say. I mean, no, you definitely did. I mean, there, there are certain concepts that you introduced me to that I still go over and relate to now. You sort of gave me a way out in my relationship to postmodernism, right. because you introduced, well, you, well, you introduced me to the idea of postmodern resistance, mm-hmm. so that you could make something using 
the tools and the aesthetic, perhaps, mm-hmm. of postmodernism, it wouldn't have to be ideology-less. It, right. would, okay. it could have some purpose, some point that mm-hmm. is... Because mo- for me, art has to be emotionally right. moving, and it has to be intellectually stimulating, and it has to be... It has, has to be trying to show the truth. Right. And so in the respect that it needs to show the truth, it has to be political. Right. It doesn't have to be political like banging someone over the head mm-hmm. with politics, but it has to be, it has to be sh- trying to show the world as it is, I guess. And so you sort of squared that circle for me, or, okay. or, or whatever you say, however you, you, just, you can describe it, in that suddenly I realised that I could be operating within the space the kind of sphere of some of the things that I hated. Yeah, and you can operate within Without, the kind of dominant yeah. narrative of the time, of yeah. the age, and you can still operate within that and critique it, but use it. And yeah, I think that's, I think that's a, that's a that's a good point. And it's very kind of you to say that too. That it was helpful in that way. Talking of kind of postmodern theory and politics, I hope at least that I would have mentioned someone like Frederick Jameson. You did. I find him very hard to read. Though. Yeah, yeah, he is. He is. I mean, he's, and, he's really, really brilliant as well. Well, he's, that's he's what I'm told. And my, to my, my my brother's done a done done. Uh, I think he did a, an MA right. in postmodern theory, and he's read Jameson. And he likes Jameson, and I did try and read him when you told me to at university. Encouraged. I did try. Yeah, well, encouraged. That's fair. That is fair. You know, you weren't one of the well, none of the actual tutors ever mm. ins- insisted, and I guess that's the general point of point of view of a lot of academic teaching now is to be a signpost rather than a yeah. pushing you down. Yeah, and make, make suggestions and also at times to explain sometimes complex ideas. Now, Jameson, he tries to be... De- he, he is deliberately obscure, isn't he? Oh, I, d- I don't, Do I don't think... know. I don't, I don't know. Do people, think... people accuse Judith Butler of being deliberately obscure as well. Um, no, I don't know. I think I think someone like Jameson, I mean, it, he, he kind of didn't shy away from the fashion in the 80s and 90s for postmodern theory in the early 21st century too. He kind of got to grips with it, and he said, "Okay, I'm going to, I'm going to really critically interrogate it, rather than kind of embrace it fully or run away from it." He embraced it, but also really radically critiqued it, and I think he did a, you know, he, he did a really good job. But I think one of the, one of the points for me about academia, and what's certainly the, one of the things that I think is really important for what I do, at least the research that I'm interested in, is to join up those dots, and I think what one of my big interests being news media and, and that sort of thing I, I'm, I'm more interested in what the, what news media might leave out rather than what it includes and the things that it does include I'm keen to critique and say well you've included this but you know, you've know you presented a kind of micro-narrative there there are other things to defend journalists and journalism you know, that's, the, that's part of the way it works that's the discourse that's the formation of discourse but I think it's my job and others like me to to, to critique that and say that there, are, there might be other ways of doing things and, and to join those dots I think that's the really important thing to join the things together which is interesting hearing you speak about because you're, you're a creative person you like to create things yeah. and you find value in doing that I think I would find value in doing that but I'm, I've never done it and I'm not particularly good at that but we come from similar political positions I think, yeah, I think and so. we've read similar things in terms of academic theory sometimes and you found your kind of way out and way through it by creating things my way out and way through it is to I'm not sure this reflects very well on me but to but to critique the kind of dominant themes and the dominant memes and the dominant narratives and mine is to critique that but I think that's so there might be a better way of doing things I think that's an important thing to do I, I mean, hope so because it's, it's all I've got no 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 but I think <laughs> it is important I mean and, and, and that's why I have a kind of ambivalent relationship with mm. academia because it's not that I don't think it's important I just so for for example, with the kind of things we were talking about on Facebook, mm-hmm. my kind of take on it, on it is that it's hard for the general public to say we should protect... And, and I have this in my own job. I mean, it's hard for the general public to say let's protect the libraries or, or let's protect mm-hmm. the, the, the universities when there are other things that are to them much more important that mm-hmm. might get cut yeah. now I think that the way that we stop that division is by saying 
all of these cuts are suspect. Absolutely. Let's look at the basic thing and, 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 and not, not be arguing this thing shouldn't be cut. There needs to be jo- a joining up of the dots mm-hmm. about yeah. this issue. That, that what's really happening is that every time there's a strike, people are saying, those people are striking, it's making my life miserable. Mm-hmm. Because the striking law, as far as I understand it, in this country is we can't strike generally. No, that we, yeah. we have to be over, no over a specific yeah. issue which is something that Thatcher put in, I think, with, mm-hmm. the, with the minor strikes. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm all for civil disobedience, and I think if they haven't given us the right laws, we need to, to, to try and find a way around that. I mean, I'm not an historian. I, I, this might be incorrect, but as far as I can work out, no kind of elite political power has ever kind of given away any of its power. All kind of progressive changes have been fought for. Yes. Everything has to be Yeah, exactly. Everything has to be contested, and I think we're in an interesting period at the moment. At the moment, you know, with the last 12 months... I and many others, of course, but in, it, I speak for me in, in this environment, in the academic environment, have felt, you know, I felt pretty got at. And that, that I'm not sure, I'm sure that yeah. what we do is given any value whatsoever other than, uh, you know... Well, they only care about the courses that create economically viable people. Yesterday I watched the House of Commons Select Committee live on my computer because David Willits... Uh, of course, I watched the House of Commons Select Committee today, which of course is all about it's, the Murdochs. And today, yeah, today's the day that the custard pie was thrown at the <laughs> at power at Murdoch. Yeah, it, it was it was thrown actually about two minutes before Dave arrived in, in my <laughs> office, which at least uh, demonstrated that it wasn't him. Um, yeah, it wasn't I, me. I can prove it wasn't I'm not, Dave. I was here. He was sat here. But yeah, David Willits yesterday said, when asked, actually, are the government essentially withdrawing? from higher education you know are you is it a hands-off approach and you're not really interested now in higher education or at least directly and he said no we are not withdrawing from it that's, that's not what we're doing at all someone responded saying well the 80 percent reduction in budget is is a pretty drastic thing and for our subjects in arts humanities social science the budget reduction has been 100 percent. they've withdrawn 100 percent of public money from what i do for a living now, of course, they're going to bring that in via tuition fees, but this is one of my. This is one of the problems with with news media's reporting of it. I think which is what I'm trying to currently write about for the British Journalism Review. I want to write a piece about it where the, the coverage in news media, even on critical news media like like Channel Four News, which is often very good. And again, I I do understand it. I understand the necessary kind of frameworks or what Jenny Kitzinger sociologists would call the media templates in order to write a story and write it quickly and under pressure of time media templates certain kind of fixed ways of representing stories mm-hmm. are adhered to you know you kind of fall back on those practices so I understand them but I want to critique them so when the student protests were happening the news media the BBC news media on, on the morning of the protests I was getting dressed watching the TV on my way up to London on the train to come to the student protests but the narrative in the news media was thousands of students are preparing to protest against the rise in tuition fees. End of quote. And then the story unfolded. That isn't the story. It's a bit of the story. But the story is the 100% reduction in the teaching fund for arts, humanities and social science. So, the, But the narrative became, this is students complaining about tuition fees. Yeah. So it, it allows the, you know, the, the general population, which is a clumsy term and, and but here's can be critiqued. A, yeah. It's students acting as disaffected, disenchanted consumers of education, where the bigger story, the job of our academics, is to then join the dots and say, actually, no, behind that, there's a bigger story. It's, but it's, it's about them, them actually washing their hands of public education. Well, absolutely. But it's an interesting thing in that when the student protests happened, my friend who's a, a cycle courier, he got very annoyed because he couldn't obviously get through and about London. And his kind of take on it was loads of... Yeah. posh kids complaining that's the problem people see students as privileged individuals whereas in fact a lot of them aren't a lot of them will become more and more so if they have to pay so much money to go to university I mean that t- shuts the door on the working class it does and it also locks in anyone that goes to university and borrows an enormous amount of money in order to pay their tuition fees is then kind of locked into and embedded firmly within a kind of financialized economy they're utterly locked in and that's massively problematic and yesterday David Willits to return to my original point before I got sidetracked I'm clumsy at that I'm sorry he said there's still teaching fund available for in quotes strategically important and vulnerable subjects and that's what he said and I thought well strategically important okay that's problematic to start with you know who makes those decisions what's what do we what do we think is a, a strategically important subject 
And that's what he said. There will be some teaching grant for strategically important and vulnerable subjects. So I thought, okay, well, to link that together with the current furore of the news of the world and this kind of hack gate thing. So would a strategically important subject include subjects that uh, that have for at least 30, 35 years critically interrogated the lack of plurality in the media, for instance, or exposed the kind of lack of transparency between media elites and political elites, or that critically interrogate and, and analyse the ways in which a kind of deregulated media market is not particularly good for news or, or has a tendency to restrict the scope and the terms of debate by framing political issues in terms of personalities, you know, and, and hundreds of other points. Well, that's the subject, media studies, but that's not considered strategically important. Well, if there's any point in history when it should be considered a strategically important subject, it should be now that journalism studies, cultural studies, media studies should be considered important. And, you know, media studies and, and subjects like that have been used as kind of journalistic shorthand for dumbing down for so long. And I'm wondering if that will continue. I suspect that it will. Well, it's in the media's best interest yeah, to course, say don't yeah. critique us. And it's in power's yeah, best interest to say don't critique us. So that, that I guess that's why... The fact why that we've been doing that for 30 years but not been listened to... Well, I haven't been doing it for 30 years. It's probably been going much longer, but I've been doing it for about 10. And the fact that we've not been listened to... You know, it doesn't mean it isn't strategically important, it just means it's in power's interest to not listen to them. The media is saying that you're irrelevant, and it's saying that the strikes are irrelevant, and it's saying, for example, I had a, I thought I was media savvy, but when I went on the big TUC march with my, my, my elderly father, and, and so it was obviously a safe environment for him to be on there, I mean, that's the first piece of evidence that I have that it wasn't as terrible as the media media designed it to be but I mean when we went on that march with my girlfriend and my dad and me we that was an amazingly positive experience I've never had a moment in my life where I've been like wow there's a hell of a lot of people we all agree we all oppose this government's shoddy and ideologically abhorrent vandalism vandalism yeah (laughs) of the welfare state and we're all saying that this is wrong and then I was at the UK Uncut actions as well mm-hmm. I was at the in Parliament Square there was a comedy show with uh, Mark Thomas and Johan Hari and uh, Josie Long and everybody like that we had lunch there and then we went off and we we, 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 we actually we were nearly in Fortnum and Masons okay. but we went the other way and when we got back you know we were just so shocked that all that was shown is this violence mm. that wasn't even that I don't want to make light of violence but it was only damage of property it wasn't even damage of person yeah and I think I think that using the term violence is problematic yeah exactly when, no you're, like, you're right the you're right the word so even is, the word violence is a is something that I'm using because I've heard it said lots of times by the media. It's, it's a pejorative term, isn't it? It's, it's, mm. you know, it's, it, my, my own research interest would be into you know conflict and war of journalism and things like that. And when the term violence is used, you know, to whom is it applied? Never really. We're never really violent. You know, our soldiers are never really violent. Often, what our soldiers are represented as are, are peacekeeping. Right? Mm. In, in fact, in Fallujah, which is one of the worst cases of brutality, I think certainly one of the most damaged cities in Iraq, the news media generally reported that as the UK and US troops have gone into Fallujah to quote unquote restore order. Well, I'm not sure flattening a city and killing 6,000 people, chasing 30,000 people from their homes, I'm not sure that's a restoration of this. You know, there's been an upsurge in violence recently in Nazareth, and you just think, well, Maybe the upsurge in violence was when we began bombing them, I don't know. So I think it's a really interesting and subtle linguistic trick, which is what I'm really interested in. I would describe myself as a critical discourse analyst or a discourse analyst, and that there are quite a few of us around. And there is even now a professor of discourse, I think. It's his own sort of little subcategory. But yet, I think. And discourse essentially means discussion. Uh, well, discourse in, in the kind of cultural studies sense is to define and limit ways of understanding, to define and limit frameworks for understanding. It's a Foucauldian thing. I'm, I was always really interested in Foucault, as you may remember. Yeah, well, Foucault and, and Bart, the death of the author, that's the, yeah. uh, the other big thing that I think you've given me. As okay. a, in fact, that's probably the most important thing that you gave me right. as a lecturer, because that has informed the way I think completely about making art ever oh, since. Okay. I used to wear a Foucault badge uh, occasionally. Anyway, I found him really, really useful. And flawed and problematic in some ways, but I think his use of the term discourse and discursive formation, I think, was really interesting. Because discourse defines and limits ways of speaking about subjects, which is 
exactly what Chomsky was saying, but perhaps, I was going to say Chomsky's unwittingly saying that when he says, you know, there are ways of limiting debate. You know, the, the, the quote I sort of began with when I said, when Chomsky talks about there are certain ways of limiting debate, um, you know, and it's about encouraging lively debate within narrow parameters. Now, Chomsky is a linguist. Historically, he is a linguist. He would be aware of this thing called discourse, but he never really uses it. In his political writing, he never really uses it. But there is a big, there's a big meeting there of, of, of his linguistics work, or potentially of his linguistics work and his political essays. Discourse both defines and at the same time limits ways of speaking about events. So we can talk about the Iraq in terms of certain mistakes have been made, but we can never question that our intentions, in quotes, are benign. Right? That's a discursive formation. Because if anyone then starts, if, if, you, if you then say, actually, no, historically speaking, you know, let's have a look. Our, our intentions are not always benign, aren't they? Then, then you're out of that discursive so, loop. So another, you're out of the loop. Another example of, of discourse then would be that, that we, we can complain about the financial crash. We can react to the financial crash, but we can never question that capitalism is, a, is, is illogical. Yeah. I mean, or Fan- is logical, yeah. Yes, and, you know, news media has a massive part to play in that. There, was a, there were a couple of BBC journalists, uh, again, fine, good journalists, but, you know, they, they work within particular parameters. One of them is called Stephanie Flanders, and after George Osborne's comprehensive spending review, the IMF responded and said that they were pleased with it. They were pleased with it. It represented good economic practice. And as a way of explaining to people watching the news who the IMF are, Stephanie Flanders said, and this is pretty much verbatim, and I could look up the quote because I've written about it, but I'll try and do it off the top of my head. Stephanie Flanders described the IMF as the organisation that comes in to do an economic health check. That's what she said, an economic health check. And the headline on the BBC website was IMF give Osborne's CSR the thumbs up. And then Robert Peston described the IMF as saying, well, this represented good housekeeping. So in order to do a discourse analysis of that, you look at the discourse and the, the, the ways of speaking about the IMF. Now, we could talk about the IMF as, you know, a, uh, a group of very powerful finance ministers or people interested in, you know, the furthering of the neoliberal capitalist project. You could even call them vandals. Absolutely. Uh, you, could call them, you could call them any number of things, but what Stephanie Flanders and Robert Peston, working within discursive limits, I'm not blaming them personally, yeah. but working within those limits... They represented them discursively as, you know, represented good housekeeping. So it's sort of locating them in the domestic discourse, right? And then also saying, give them the thumbs up, locates them in a kind of, you know, hey, thumbs up, happy, happy-go-lucky, you know, one of us discourse. And economic health check is even more problematic because it locates them in the in the discourse of health. They're like a like They are looking after yeah, our looking best interests. Yeah. And that, it, it takes an awful lot of work sometimes to linguistically unpick the way in which news media describes particular events, but I think it's it's necessary. It's what I do. It's what I do for a living. I think it's sort of worthwhile. I'm not sure David Willits agrees. No, well, he and I'm doesn't. not sure how much longer I'm going to be paid to do that. <laughs> well, but I hope it's for the rest of my career, but I'm worried that it might not be. Well, it's a tricky time. You give a good reason why you're relevant and why we should continue to yeah, pay your salary. That I probably think that's sounds very good. rather arrogant. No, 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 no I don't think it does. I don't think it does. I think it sounds actually very fair. What arrogant I, or desperate, I don't know. Well, <laughs> there's a fine line between all of these states of being. But, I mean, how do you circumvent... Power don't want you to be writing stuff that's critiquing it. Yeah, I don't want to overplay my own hand either. I'm sure no one's actually no, listening I mean, to I, me, but, I, I, but people, people like, like you. Yeah. Right, your your area. How do you circumnavigate power to speak to the people? One of my critiques of the discourse of academia is that you use language that is a different kind of the language of power. Mm-hmm. So in my own career, I've been in councils, local councils. They use jargonistic speech mm-hmm. to disguise the way that the bureaucracy works, the way that power works. Everyone's heard these terrible hackneyed phrases that people use in bureaucracy and they're painful but everyone still uses them and you can't get out of it. So, you know, you can't get out of it. It's hard for me not to use the words, uh-huh. for example, service user, right. things like that. It's hard for me to avoid them just because that's what we talk in, that's how we talk. And I think academics do the same thing. Uh-huh. You use words that aren't necessarily accessible to... 
right. plumbers before they okay. yeah. become academics. Um, and plumbers need to hear the stuff that you're saying, yeah. which is my, why, I, why I get frustrated with mm-hmm. academia. It's not because I think academia is not useful, mm. although I don't think it's the answer for everybody, and I do get annoyed yeah, with yeah. the whole everyone must go to no, university. No, 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 but, one, no. but I think it's completely useful, which is why I want it to be better. And I have a similar attitude to the council. Right. I think the council is useful. I think the welfare state is useful at the moment. I'll do yeah, everything yeah, in my excellent. yeah. At the moment, I'll do everything in my power to stop these cuts from happening. Mm. If those cuts are vanquished, which they probably won't be, but if they are vanquished and we have retained the welfare state, then I would totally be behind reforming it. Mm. I mean, <laughs> there right. is there is always improvements to be yeah. made. So it's how problematic you... to adopt and appropriate the same languages that are perhaps oppressing you or whatever. Yeah. And so how do you t- how do you talk to how do you tell people this the, about discourse? How well, in you... this respect, I'm actually failing. The, the way I do that is I talk to students, but yeah. they're they're a particular constituency. So I speak to students, uh, you know, in, in similar ways that I'm having this conversation, I might show, you know, a clip of news or a panorama or something like that, or of news night. So particularly in journalism studies, I might say, OK, so what's the news story? What do you understand the story is? And then we kind of analyse that. And then I'll try and get behind that and yeah. say, this is, these are other things that we might think about. So within a particular confines or the discursive limits of academia, I talk to students and I hope that they understand things. And then I would write, I guess I'm trying currently to write not only for academic journals, but for blogs and websites. And do you use different vocabulary for different... In actual fact, yeah, I I think I just did, very recently in the last week, tried and partially succeeded, but needed a good editor, where I wrote a piece about the news of the world and about the public inquiry that David Cameron claims to want to set up which of course will limit its scope to looking at evil individuals as opposed to looking at the wider structural problems within media and the political class. I was asked to write for a website called The New Left Project. It's very nice thing to ask and I wrote this thing and I was reasonably pleased with it but knew that it wasn't exactly as, as good as it could be. So I sent it to the guy that asked me, the editor. He wrote back with a really fantastic critique, really get, I mean, demonstrated the value of a good editor. Oh, editors are essential. Yeah, and I think... I really like, want one. A really overlooked, <laughs> undervalued group. Uh, anyway, he wrote back and said, OK, I think what you're trying to say is, he said these three points. And I thought, yeah, you've nailed it. And he said, you want to tighten up the argument in particular ways. And he gave me some really good advice. This very afternoon, in fact, I've been rewriting it. And he emailed me when you and I were actually together. We went off for coffee, came back, and I found that he'd emailed me. So, yeah, I'm trying to speak to a slightly wider audience. But, you know, even then, the New Left Project's well-read and it's a good website. And they have links with The Guardian and Le Monde Diplomatique. And so there is the opportunity to kind of get this stuff out in... A slightly wider audience, certainly a wider audience in academia, because academics yeah. mainly talk to each other and to students. So there are those possibilities, but I'm going to continue to work at that. And you know, I'm going to write a piece for the Guardian Higher Education Network about the white paper and about David Willits's his policies. Not about David Willits. So I'm not going to do an ad hominem attack. So yeah, I'm slightly widening and the kind of constituency, but I don't know if I'm good enough at. at talking to plumbers or, you know, being on a picket line and talking to, you know, firemen or whoever. I don't but know. I, I guess it off. kind of pays forward, doesn't it? I mean, if you talk to... If you tell your students and you you touch some... Like, the thing is, I got some things from what you taught me mm. and that's then gone out and I've told other people those things and it kind of pays forward, doesn't it? So yeah. it kind of... It spreads out. So everybody's just part of society. So in that respect, I think there is a is a value to what you're doing. And actually, as we've been talking about it, it's an interesting thing with these conversations because what I have to do is to try and put myself into the other person's side of things, to try and relate to them. And it often makes me have to challenge my own assumptions, and so I guess it's very healthy for me. One thing I always say about art is you need the extremes as well as the pop mainstream. Now, Mm -hmm. I'm a pop mainstream sensibility artist but I really appreciate the people who like John Cage or whatever mm-hmm. doing silence you're or, in the margins yeah the, the, the people who push it to, as far as it can go mm-hmm. to the point where it becomes hard to relate to like throbbing gristle musically right. yeah or, or like Arto 
okay. in theatre. They were going, plumbers won't relate to that moment in the podcast. And I always think you need those extremes, and then those extremes then feed back into mm-hmm. the mainstream and when they do they often make some of the best art so the trailblazers are never really as good as the band that comes 10 years later yeah. is influenced by them and makes really good art that is accessible yeah I think I'm right in saying that a theatre studies practitioner and writer academic called Richard Schechner I think he wrote about the most interesting moments of art and artistic endeavour happen in what he called the creases in the creases that, that you don't quite see and mm. they emerge and I think I think there's some there's some truth to that that's probably true yeah. how I how I do that in terms of media yeah I, I mean I spend all my time looking at mainstream news but I think it's because it's so important because it's that's the that's where the dominant narratives emerge well, and are re- it's right. where the dominant narratives are reproduced actually yeah they reproduce themselves and it's little subtle linguistic I was going to say tricks but tricks sounds like it's a like it's a kind of ledger domain, like it's the journalist trying to trick us. It's not. It's a. It's about discursive practice. Well, the it's about the way they've learned to tell the story. That's what the media is supposed to be. The media is supposed to be the critique of power. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> Sorry, they're not. Yeah, yeah no, it's, it is funny, right? isn't it? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the fourth estate. And yeah. so it's good. it's good that you're critiquing it. And, I mean, I guess where I need to sort of let up on academia is where don't you know you need to just well i think there is i still i think there is still some critiques to be given to yeah. academia as there is to anyone as i would expect people to give me about my work but i think that for example jameson or, or people i've had those kind of relationships too where i'm like i can't understand this mm-hmm. no one else is going to be able to understand this why should i bother trying to hack into this thing maybe that isn't really relevant maybe it's good that someone pushed critical thinking to mm-hmm. that extreme to that crease right, okay. as you're talking about yeah. if I see the kind of parallels between art and academic discourse then maybe it's good that these people are at the side but then popularizers of critical thinking mm-hmm. like there are some journalists that do it there yeah, are some yeah, popular science writers yeah. there are lots of um, there are some extraordinarily good journalists but most of the journalists that are very good uh, and this is the difference between comment and news pieces there are some very good critical commentators yes someone like George Monbiot Johan Hari yeah Johan Hari current, it's an know, interesting thing what did you think about that I think he, he kind of dug a hole and then carried on digging which I thought was problematic he definitely made a mistake part yeah. of that I don't know if this is true or right it might be wrong but part of that might be because he wasn't really trained as a journalist he was really young and he's a brilliant writer he is. He's a very I mean, good writer. And I don't always agree with him. I don't always agree with him. I once had an argument with him on Twitter about Che Guevara. Yeah, I think I remember reading it. I follow quite, you both. I, uh, was yeah, I, was, I was quite pleased that he had an argument with me. I thought that showed yeah, he's definitely willing good to character. And, and I think that his, I like his podcast. I like what he mm-hmm. does. I, I always think his writing is interesting. I didn't know where to, how to feel about that because I, I sort of thought, well, when you write something, you have these kind of twin problems you have the truth and you have clarity Mm. and they're not always the same thing and sometimes to tell the best truth you have to sacrifice like to to, i think that's right to tell truth clearly you have to sacrifice the only problem i thought that you had was he didn't tell anyone that he was doing sources that's all he should have told like plagiarism yeah but i think his rationale for doing it is to you know to make the story better or to make the polemic better or to, to to represent the person in the fairest way. I do think he was probably right in that, but you need to you needed to say a very, a very kind of I guess obvious maybe you know thing to do is to reveal your sources. I think. It, well, I to think, not look like you're trying to plagiarise because he's good enough to not need to plagiarise. No, and I think that the, the where where pe- where he re- really fell down, where people found it awkward, is I think he was also kind of self-aggrandising himself through doing it because I think he has got an he's ego and fair so. enough everybody's got an ego I don't knock him for having an mm. ego most of the best bands I like have big egos but it was the way that he wasn't just taking the quotes and inserting them he was also putting stage directions <laughs> in the quotes yeah, yeah. so it, it wasn't something that someone said to him and then he says he turned to me and said mm-hmm. that that's where people kind of yeah, which, and there was which, a lot of funny stuff brought, about that on Twitter. Yeah, and there was a lot of interviews with Harry. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think a, a friend of mine tweeted a very funny thing, and I was I was torn because I'm 
yeah, I instinctively want to side with Johan Hori. Me too. Because I normally agree with what he writes, but... I mean, me too. He's one he of the few people, I think, like him and Laurie Penny are like my, my two journalists who, for all their journalists, for all their still problematic in some ways they're not problematic in the way that most journalists but are they write, they write comment pieces yeah. comment and news are quite different yeah. comment is always to, to comment on the news once the news has already kind of reproduced its dominant narrative then you can comment on that or comment well, on aspects of that although but the news reporting is the thing that normally old fashioned media studies term sets the agenda now I think things can shift and you can shift it but news reporting that sets the agenda I think is is a slightly different thing to comment. So I like someone like I like George Monbiot. Yeah. I like I like Robert Fisk. I even quite like Mark Steele. You know, he's stand up comic, but his funny pieces. Yeah, I think he's good. I quite like John him. Harris is good. I think yeah, he's very well. good. I think John Harris is a great kind of critique of popular culture. And in fact, probably the best, my favourite journalist, written journalist, is probably Gary Young in the Guardian. He almost never misses the mark. Anyway, he wrote a piece yesterday and again today. I do think he's the best written journalist I've come across. But I would say, out of all of those people that we've mentioned, Laurie Penny, I think, doesn't just write comment. She does always write. Oh, yeah, yeah, she right, does yeah. always write polemic, though. Mm. So she, I mean, one of the things I think is very interesting about her journalism is she tweets from the actual yeah, from, places, from live, from events, and then yeah. when she writes her articles they will just be reproducing some of the quotes that she mm-hmm. quoted in the tweets. Yeah. So in terms of sources there, mm-hmm. that's really direct. Mm-hmm. It happens exactly when it happens. You can see it on her Twitter line in a way that it's exposing the process of the media, yeah. which is very important, really. I think she's doing, she's doing good stuff, I think, interesting things. She, I mean, she can, someone, someone called her she's the, very the voice of the generation. And yeah. I, and I think someone, in critiquing a piece she'd written through that at her as an insult and in her defence I don't think she's ever claimed that no she has never claimed to be the voice of a generation no. it's a kind of lazy journalistic trope to sort of go ah oh, well she's the voice of a generation as another way of kind of what well, she is she's, writing a, she's a young woman who is doing something that a lot of young women aren't able to do and she can write extraordinary and she well. writes very well yeah. she writes very emotionally I think there are flaws you can critique her work mm. in a very different way than you would actually maybe I mean, I was thinking about this. A lot of my friends say, yeah, why do you like Laurie Penny? She's so clearly left-wing and clearly... like Because, I mean, m- my politics aren't straightforwardly left-wing. Mm. They're, they're more... Well, I'm, I'm, I've, I think I've classed myself as a pragmatic anarchist. I think right. that's what I've come to decide right. side am. So I'm an anarchist, but in the short term, I'll be pragmatic. Because, mm. <laughs> yeah. you know, I don't want bad stuff to happen. Yeah, yeah. I just want a better society. But Laurie Penny is very old-school left-wing, mm. and she's very kind of emotive in the way that she presents her arguments. And so people say, well, why do you, why do you support her? And I, I support her because I think that so is the Telegraph. So they're all completely ideological systems, but you can see Laurie Penny's ideology, and no one can see that. Our dominant ideology never reveals itself exactly. to be the dominant. So yeah, that's the you know, which is same thing. You know, people have issues, uh, and I have some as well. But with with someone like Michael Moore when he makes his films, yeah. say, I just wish he could be a bit more balanced. And yeah, me think, too. It's not his job to be balanced. You know, he's he's. The, the dominant ideology is there and he's critiquing I think it wasn't until he made Capitalism a Love Story that after 20 years of filmmaking he finally thought oh right oh, I've been writing about all these kind of little aspects but the dominant the connecting theme See, is this kind of neoliberal capital well where I don't like Mike, Michael Moore is in I mean I didn't like what he did in terms of again sometimes with the left I just get annoyed about and it's stupid, but I get annoyed about PR. I, I'm like, well, why have you done that thing? It just makes it look bad. So I didn't like the fact that in Bowling for Columbine he went and ch- like attacked Charlton Heston. Yeah, yeah. Because it wasn't sensible, because Charlton Heston wasn't... He didn't have enough to him left mm. to be worth attacking. He shouldn't be, yeah. He should yeah. be the, the subject of the client. It let people not accept what Michael Moore was saying. Mm-hmm. And that's that's where I can get very frustrated. He's an interesting filmmaker, I guess. He's he is. I mean, he no, is good. putting himself at the centre of the of the narrative. I liked Fahrenheit nine nine eleven. Yeah. I liked that one. That was because it was more openly ideological as well. I mean, yeah. I, I'm. But, I'm, I, but the, the point for me is it. that it's not. It just frustrates me when people sort of complain about it being like a one sided argument. You just think, well, no, the, the dominant media narrative is also one sided. Yeah. It's just we don't know it. 
And anyway, how, you do if you work hard. How can you have a conversation if people aren't allowed to say like one-sided <laughs> arguments? One person writes something, then another person can write something in response to that, and that's how mm. I'd like the media to work. I'd like, and it does work sometimes like yeah. that. But Although even there is, then, they're in. No, this there's a danger there of you know it becoming like kind of Fox News, so we have a kind of right wing, right wing, and then a left wing, and I think because you know, in some ways yeah. I think what the BBC does is not quite good enough. But I think the model for it, that the publicly funded information, okay, publicly funded journalism, I think there's a really, really brilliant book called The Return of the Public, written by Dan Hyde, that everyone should buy. I'm now looking at the microphone <laughs> because it's a very good book. I'm not going to attempt to talk about it much because I won't do it justice, but his thesis is you know, about, about media plurality, but about publicly funding journalism, you know, and not just like the BBC, but publicly funding written journalism. Journalism and information is too important to be left to the market, right? and loads of things are too important to be mm-hmm. left to the market. Perhaps the silver lining, which I don't have too much hope for, but I'm still going to try and work at it along with other people, is that this whole scandal about news of the world it might open up slight possibilities to say, look, there are different ways and better ways of funding the media. Mm. There are slight hopes, because in 2009, David Cameron said, under a Conservative government, Ofcom will not quite be disbanded, but they'll just restrict themselves to sort of yeah. technological issues. Well, and that ain't on the table now. It can't be, OK? Because you can't leave it to the market. It's too important. And we know, you know, like Jeremy Hunt was just about to kind of march through the, the, the BSKB thing, and it's too important. So there are, there are slight possibilities. I don't know how much hope I have. It's one of the things no, I'm trying to write about now, about widening the remit of the inquiry, not just so we look at it fading individuals, that kind of bad apple theory. Like, you know, there's a few bad apples, but the barrel's okay. Well, you know, it really isn't. But to come back to the BBC, I think what the BBC does, you know, some ways is brilliant. You know, I'm always a real advocate and supporter of the BBC, but, you know, given that my, my research, my PhD mainly is critically analysing BBC news coverage and current affairs coverage actually Panorama which I have massive issues with I, I don't want it to be disbanded I just want it to no. do, it, do its job better me neither I'm worried that actually as someone working in academia that what we're supposed to have is a bit of public profile I'm a bit worried that when I write my thesis when it's completed and hopefully if Paul Grave McMillan like it it will be published as a book that, that my high public profile if it comes will be in the Daily Mail because what I'm doing is critiquing the BBC. So they'll rip it out of its context and say, look, there's an academic here saying the BBC's rubbish. And they'll completely miss my point. So I'm saying, yeah, the BBC isn't doing what it probably should do. I want it to be better, yeah. not to throw exactly. the whole thing out. The argument for I'm the really B- worried. Well the, well, the argument for the BBC is the same for the welfare state. Yeah. It needs to be better. It doesn't need to be got rid of. Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's clearly, we need to help people more. Yeah. We have to have better broadcast mm. that, is, that is as objective as possible, that can challenge power. Yeah. I find it insane that everyone says that the lib- there's, there's a liberal bias in the BBC. As far as I can make out, I've done quite a bit of research on it, that there are very few, if any, that I can think of off the top of my head, peer-reviewed. You know, I perhaps over-invest in the kind of faith in peer-reviewed academic yeah. journals, but I don't, I don't have any evidence at all, nor has anyone else, that actually there's a kind of leftish liberal bias no. in the BBC. And the opposite is probably true. I think um, so. There's a really good academic uh, called Justin Lewis, not the newsreader. He's a professor of journalism, I think professor of journalism at Cardiff. He's written quite a lot about the BBC's coverage of the Iraq war, which of course I obviously use, and not like Johan Harry, <laughs> reference his research. And the Cardiff School of Journalism, actually, they, they did a lot of critical work about the BBC news coverage of the Iraq war, and he's written really well on that. He's written really well on the BBC, anyway. Well... I find this fantastically interesting conversation. We've gone over time, so I'm oh gonna, right, okay. I'm it's felt a little bit like psychoanalysis. But yeah, that's a good point. It's been that's good. good. Well, that's that's yeah. It's it's funny because we're in a, a, a an office and you're on one side of a desk yeah. and I'm on the other side. Of the God, desk. that's terrible. Actually, it, we should have it, been the same side. It looks like I'm having a no, tutorial. It, it doesn't feel like that. No, <laughs> it doesn't feel like that. And it, in fact. In the in the interest of exposing the process, this is the first interview where there's been a computer on the on the table by the person I've been talking to. And at one point, I think you did look at it for a quote. I did, yeah. Which I, I think yeah. is great. I wish I <laughs> <laughs> wish I could do that more often. And 
certainly I always find listening back to podcasts the painful moments are when you try and quote something and you get it wrong so I was it's probably self-indulgent quoting myself for something I wrote about a week ago but, and I just wanted yeah, to get it clear I think that's good I'm, I've got no problem with that I mean in fact I did have an interview with somebody who brought notes so right. you, you know okay. you're, uh, you're you know you're, you're not as uh, worried about it as he was <laughs> no I? no but we are yeah sat in my office yeah, yeah. sat in your office in, in the university so this was a trip back into a university space for me uh, to talk about um, academic stuff again, which is, and I, and I like talking about academic stuff, even though I do critique it. So the last question that I ask people is, do you have anything you'd like to plug? Plug? Yeah. Uh, well, yeah. I guess so. I don't. I don't. Well, plug my own stuff. No, because I am trying to publish my thesis with Paul Grove, uh, but it's not out yet. So no. any work I do on even UNEF project or my own blog, which is called Keeping the Rabble in Line, so um, keeping the rabble in line at WordPress. I'm trying to write at the moment for UNEF project and the Guardian Higher Education Network. But hopefully my book, at some point, if we revisit the podcast, that will be out. But the one book I would I would plug that isn't mine would be Dan Hines' The Return of the Public. If we want a better way of publicly funding journalism, read Dan Hines, The Return of the Public. Fantastic. So there you go, Dan. In case you ever listen to this, I non-stop plug his book for him. <laughs> I find it so much easier to plug other people's stuff than your own. Because, you know, you can just be passionate about it. And yeah. You know, and you don't feel arrogant in that passion. Well, I've always already been self-indulgent enough to you know, well, talk about my own work. But, um, but no, I think... When my book comes out, yeah, buy that. People should look, look out for it. They should definitely buy the book. I'll, I'll be buying it. And I don't know when this podcast will come out. I guess I'll partly be paying attention to the news to see when, <laughs> when, when it becomes irrelevant or not. Might be a slow-burning story for about 18 months. I guess. So exactly, so you never know. When it, when it comes out, you, you may, it may, I may be able to coincide it with you. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, it's been a real pleasure getting better acquainted. Do you want to say goodbye to the audience? Yeah, OK. <laughs> thanks, for, uh, thanks for listening and tuning in to Dave's Getting Better Acquainted. Cheers. Goodbye. You can find Getting Better Acquainted on Twitter, at GBA Podcast. You can find it on Facebook, it's Getting Better Acquainted. Have a search on Facebook and like it. Or you can find it on the website, www.gettingbetteracquainted.co.uk. You can also subscribe by searching on iTunes and subscribing to us that way. There are lots of ways to get better acquainted. Have you been enjoying listening to these free podcasts? I've been really enjoying making them. I'm not asking you for money for myself. I don't want to be paid for making these. But I do want to do some more things with this show and also with Stand Up Tragedy. If you want to help me to do this, I'd be really grateful because I can't do it on my own. I need a little bit of help. So please give what you can. Go along to the Indiegogo campaign. Type into your browser bit.ly forward slash gba and sut it'll be great if i can hit my target it'll be great if i even get somewhere towards that target with the money what i'm going to do is pay the performers who'll be performing at stand up tragedy and go on some more gba road trips back to places where i have no real access to and i'll be interviewing some more people there remembering those places taking some of your favourite guests along for the ride.